Right, well, grab grab your Bibles. Now we're um we're still on uh subjects of women in the church. And having looked at what they can't do, we're we're now gonna move on to um to see what they actually can do. But what I want to do first, because we, we saw this last time, didn't we, about the head coverings and you know this was how we knew that women were free to pray and prophesy and to, to take part in that general sense. And um well, I thought it'd be good if we actually had a look at this because it's a, it's a very, very difficult passage, but nevertheless, I'll, I'll try and, and give you my, my very best understanding of it. So, so let's actually, if you, you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and let's read um, uh, through from verse 3. Okay, so let's, let's go through this, this passage. Now, I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head, and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off, and if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, let's, let's just immediately dive in there with verse 3, all right? I want to do this first. And what Paul says, because this is all to do with the relationship of men and women, all right? The relationship between the different sexes. And what Paul says is this. He says, I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is is God. Now, what I want to show you is that when it comes to the relationship between the sexes, what Paul says here is that man is to woman as the father is to Jesus. So in the same way that the father is the head of Jesus, the man is the head of the woman. Now, what I want to actually show you here is that we've got two things that we need to hold together. And the first thing I want to show you is that we most certainly have, between the sexes, equal status. Any idea that men are superior to women is ridiculous, and that certainly doesn't come from the Bible. So we're going to see that there is absolute equal status between men and women. If you go to Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, and we'll um, read verse 26, and this is the actual creation. Then God says, that sorry, then God said, let us make man in our image, our, because of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. So what we've got clearly in that passage is that not only is man, and thinking in terms of Adam, uh, you know, sort of there in the image of God, but also man there is a generic term. It includes men and women, male and female. He created them. So men and women are equally in the image of God and therefore completely equal. Uh, just go over to chapter 5, Genesis chapter 5. Um, and in verse 1, the second half, it says, When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and blessed them. And when they were created, talking about Adam and Eve, he called them man. So there we have man as the generic term, mankind. So clearly, in that regard, there is absolutely equal status between men and women. And if you go over to uh, Galatians and find Galatians chapter 3, and um, in verse 28, um, well, we'll start reading from um, verse 26. Paul says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And what Paul's talking about there is that there is absolute equality. Um, if you're a Jew, that doesn't make you superior to a Greek, or if you're a Greek, it doesn't make you superior to a Jew, or anything like that. And uh, you know, a, a slave is not inferior to his master in the sense of that his value or worth as a human being is any less. And so, I mean, actually, in the ancient world, very often women were treated as if they were inferior to men. And, uh, you know, in actual fact, you know, the Christian gospel coming along actually brought women up to where they should be absolutely equal with the menfolk. And so it's tremendously important to understand that, that obviously there is equal status. But the second thing that we need to understand when it comes to the relationship between men and women, and obviously in particular a wife to her husband, is that although the husband and wife are absolutely equal before God, of course they are, nevertheless, functionally, the woman is under her husband's authority. Now if you go to Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3 and uh, verse 16, and we see this. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. This is obviously the result of the fall. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, obviously, one of the things that we've got to realise as well is that some people say, well, look, the wife submitting to the husband was purely the result of the fall. And because of what Jesus has done, we're set free from that, so it doesn't apply anymore. But remember, one of the things we see in Genesis is that we see that Adam was created first. And we see very, very clearly that Eve was created to be Adam's helper. It wasn't the other way round. And of course, when we come into the New Testament, and if anyone understood what it meant that Jesus has come to undo the effects of the fall and what happened in the Garden of Eden. If anyone in the New Testament, amongst the New Testament writers, understood that, it was Paul the Apostle. And yet, Paul, every time he addresses husbands and wives, he always says, wives, submit to your husbands. So we need to understand quite clearly that this order of the man being the head of the wife and Paul makes that absolutely clear, is not something that has just happened because of the fall and now because of Jesus has been undone. It is something that was built into very creation itself. It was the very nature of the relationship between Adam and Eve. Eve was created to help Adam. It wasn't the other way round. Uh, if, if you go to 1 Peter, uh, the first letter of Peter, and find chapter 3, and we'll read verse, verses 1 to 6. And he said, Wives, in the same way, be submissive 
to your husbands, so that, if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Now, this is interesting. Peter there is writing to women whose husbands aren't believers. Now, what does he say? What's the key? What's the very best thing they can do to bring them, to influence their husbands so that they become believers? And he says, submit to them. Submit to them. And, and, and don't try and win them with words, because that can just be part of control and, and nagging or whatever. He says, look, just submit to your husbands. And the mere fact that they're seeing you do that, oh boy, they'll realise that something is going on here. And they'll see the manner of your life. And then, my goodness, if they're, if they're likely to, you know, to get saved, as it were, that's how to do it, by being submissive. And then um, if you go down to verse 5, and, and he says, For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. So what we're seeing here very, very clearly is that there is absolutely equal status between men and women, and therefore absolutely equal status between a husband and his wife. But nevertheless, the wife is under her husband's authority functionally. Go, go to 1 Timothy, uh, Paul's first letter to Timothy. And this is kind of, um, we saw this last time, I think. 1 Timothy, chapter 2. And Paul says this, and this is in regards to teaching. One of the things that we've seen that women can't do in the church. A woman should learn in quietness and for submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. See, Paul uses that argument. The fact that Adam was created first told Paul that this functional hierarchy between man and woman was actually built into creation from the word go. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But there you see the point, is that Paul is saying that women not having authority over men insofar as it comes to the Christian life and church life. And so there, there you have it again, that the, the wife is under the husband's authority functionally. Now, let's just remind ourselves as well, uh, if we go, go back to, uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, whoops, 1 Corinthians 11, and let's immediately remind ourselves of what we just read in verse 3. The head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, what I want you to see is that within the Trinity itself, let me ask a question. The Father is the head of Jesus. The husband is the head of the woman. Now, let's ask a question. Does that make the woman inferior to the man? Well, it no more makes the woman inferior to the man him being her head, than it would make Jesus inferior to the Father, the Father being Jesus' head. The Father and Jesus are absolutely equal. Why? Because they are God. They are two persons within the Trinity. So therefore, the Father is the head of Jesus, the man is the head of the woman. Absolute equality when it comes to status. But functionally, functionally, did the Father do what Jesus told him to do, or did Jesus do what the Father told him to do? And throughout the life of Jesus, when you read the Gospels, particularly in John, you'll hear Jesus saying, I do only what I see my Father doing. I do only what my Father tells me. So Jesus submitted to his Father in heaven. So, was Jesus equal to the Father? Of course he was. He was God himself. 
the fact that he became a man did not make him inferior to God. Of course, he remained God the whole time. Even when God becomes a man, you can't stop being God. If you're God, you're God. That's it. So Jesus and the Father were absolutely equal in status. But functionally, Jesus placed himself under the authority of the Father. And that is the situation that we have between men and women. That is the situation that we have between a man and his wife. So that status-wise, absolutely equal, just like the Father and just like Jesus. But when it comes to function, the wife stands to the husband as Jesus does to the Father. Okay, And that she ought to submit functionally to his authority. And what is the link between these two things? The father and Jesus, the man and the woman, the husband and the wife. Well, the link is that Jesus is the head of the man. So we actually have a chain of authority here, don't we? Uh, the father to Jesus, all right, Jesus to the man and the man to the woman. Now, there's, there's a descending hierarchy. I go on and on about that there's no hierarchy in the church, and indeed there isn't just Jesus and everybody else, but there is hierarchy in regards to other aspects of life. There's hierarchy in society, government to um, the people, um, and obviously there's, there's hierarchy in families, parents to children. We can see that fair enough, but part of the hierarchy in family is that the husband is the head of the wife. Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, let's just have, at this point, um, a little dippy into verse 7, 7 through to 9. See, see if you can get this. A man ought not to cover his head, and we'll be seeing that in a little while. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. Now listen, for man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Now, there you have it. Adam was created first, Eve came out of Adam. That pictured, that showed that Adam was in authority over her. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Eve was created to be Adam's helper, not the other way round. Now, let's just go back to this thing about that the man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. The idea here is reflecting, reflecting the glory, okay. Now, in the sense that obviously it says that the man is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Now, we've obviously seen, of course, the woman is the image of God as well. We've seen that already. Men and women are created in the image of God. But here it says that the man is the glory of God. So the idea here, sort of like the, uh, I mean, think of it, the moon reflects the glory of the sun. When we look at the moon, what do we see? We see it shining. But does the moon have any light of its own? Now, of course not. It's reflecting the sun. So that, that, that's the picture of glory, reflecting the glory of the sun. So the point is that here, man directly reflects the glory of God. But it says here that the woman reflects the glory of man. And of course the push is her man, her man. So the thing is that there's a sense, now obviously a man and a woman in their individual relationship with Jesus they stand face to face with him. Of course they do. That is what discipleship is. But in relationship, when it comes to the relationship between men and women as a unit, when it comes to marriage, the husband stands directly before the Lord as the, the leader of the family, the spiritual leader of the family. And the wife stands in that regards, not directly before the Lord, but directly before her husband. Um, still, still using this picture of the moon. Let's, let's play around with this a little bit more. Let's play around with that picture. Let me tell you the way that I tend to think of this. And it, it seems to me to sum up exactly the relationship between the man and the woman when it comes to life together as husband and wife. And it's this. The earth revolves around the sun. Okay? Now, the sun is God, the Lord, and the earth is the husband, all right? So what we've got is that the, the earth revolves directly around the sun. That is the relationship of the husband to the Lord. But we have a moon. We have a moon. And it's interesting, in the Old Testament, the sun and the moon is used of a picture 
of husband and wife. And uh, so, so therefore, um, you know, the thing about, um, oh, Christ, Joseph and uh, Joseph in his dream about the sun and the moon and the stars, the sun and the moon represented his mother and, and his father, you see. And so the picture that we've got here is that the relationship of the wife is that of the moon. So the sun is the father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, God. The earth is the husband revolving around the sun. The wife is the moon. Now then, is the moon revolving around the sun just like the earth is? Yes, of course it is. So does a wife revolve around Jesus as Lord? Of course she does. She has individual salvation. But the difference is this. The earth just revolves around the sun. But the moon revolves directly around the earth and revolves around the sun as a result of revolving directly around the earth. Now that is the relationship between husband and wife before the Lord. And can you see that? The man does not revolve around the woman. The woman revolves around the man. The man is there to serve the Lord directly. Hence, he is the spiritual leader of his family. The wife is there to help the husband, to be his helpmeet as he does that. And that is how she serves the Lord. So, therefore, God's word in Scripture to husbands is that they submit to the Lord. What is God's word for wives in Scripture? That they submit to their husbands. So, the wife submits to the Lord by submitting to her husband. And that is the relationship that we have between men and women, husbands and wives. And the key to understanding this rather difficult and obscure passage in 1 Corinthians 11 about these head coverings is that apparently God has set in nature a sign of this hierarchical relationship between men and women, between husbands and wives, has built into nature a sign and it is for the angels. Let's just look at verse 10. Paul says, for this reason and because of the angels, see, it's not for other people. This is for the angels. Now, maybe goody angels, maybe the baddie angels, the demons, maybe both of them. I don't know. But Scripture just says that because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. So therefore, what we're seeing here is Paul says, a woman should have something on her head that is demonstrating to the angels, it's acting as a symbol, a sign of that woman's submission to her husband and that she is under not just the authority of the Lord himself but that she is actually under her husband's authority as well. So basically, where we've come so far is simply to see that God has set in nature a sign that a woman is under her husband's authority and that this sign set in nature is something on her head. So with that in mind, obviously it's a head covering, but of course now the all-important question is, what sort of head covering? And so, therefore, as we dive into this passage now to find out about that, let me just give you um, my understanding of the background um, of the passage here that Paul is writing. Now, obviously, it can only be my very best understanding. This is a difficult passage. And I think all one can do is to come to one's own best understanding. And that is what I'm, I'm going to try and do. Now then, first of all, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. So what does that immediately tell us? Well, it tells us that he's writing to a Greek city. And it tells us as well that within the Corinthian church, there would have been two groups of people. There would have been converted Greeks, converted Corinthians, and there would have been converted Jews, because Jews lived in Corinth, the Jews lived all over the, you know, 
the, the then known world. So we would have had two groups of people in this church, Jews and Greeks, coming from different cultures, different backgrounds, religiously and everything. Now, what is the context here? The context is, and we've seen this, haven't we, that from 1 Corinthians 10 up until the end of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is dealing with what happens when a church comes together on the first day of the week for its kind of its time together, its sharing, its worship, having the love feast, etc., etc. And the context here, obviously, because he mentions about praying and prophesying, the context here is that aspect of the church's gathering of when you come together, each one has. So this is, the context is this corporate, open, participatory, sharing time. No one is leading it. It's led by the Holy Spirit with everyone free to take part as the Holy Spirit leads them. And that is the context, all right? So you can say that the context here is, is, is worship. It's not the worship service because, as we've seen, the early church didn't have worship services, nothing like it. A worship service is something led from the front. This was not led from the front. By definition, the numbers were small in someone's house. Um, it was completely open, free, spontaneous, participatory, no one leading it. But nevertheless, think of it in terms of, yeah, worship is part of that mix, although the real push behind what Paul says is that this gathering is for the edification, to build each other up spiritually. But certainly worship, prayer, singing hymns and psalms to the Lord is all part of that mix, obviously. And so this is the context that we've got here. Now, what it boils down to, as far as I can understand, is we've got to ask, OK, well, what was the normative things for the Greek men and women and for the Jewish men and women to be doing when they came together for worship? Well, basically, it was this. When they came together for worship, the Jewish men and the Jewish women were, were veiled. So the women had something over their head coming down around their face, and also the Jewish men had talithes which came down over their face as well. And so that's the situation with the Jews, uh, with, with the Jewish men and women. They're turning up, in effect, they're, they're, they're covered, all right, in various ways, but they're covered. Now, also, it's important to understand that the Jewish women, precisely because they were Jewish, would have understood from the Old Testament God's order in the family, the hierarchy in the family, that the husband is the head of the wife. Remember, we saw Peter. What model does he give? If he says, look, Christian wives, you know, what is your model? Where can you look for an example of what I'm saying to you? And he says, go back to Abraham and Sarah, you see. Abraham called him Lord. Uh, sorry, Sarah called him Lord. And so, therefore, you see Abraham's headship as the husband in the family and his wife's submission to him. So obviously the Jewish men and women would have known this. So they would have understood that hierarchy. The Jewish women, by and large, would have been submissive towards their husbands. Um, and in fact, very possibly, as we're going to see, they might have been overdoing it, if you see what I mean. We're, we're going to see that uh, very, very shortly. Um, now, the Greeks, though, both the men and the women, when they came to worship, they didn't veil. Okay? But certainly amongst the Greeks, the Greeks' women, especially once they got into the church and, you know, because they didn't have the background of, you know, sort of like Moses and Abraham and everything. And uh, certainly with the way that the Christian gospel was liberating women in general, giving them a status they'd never had before, it was probably the case that the Greeks were the women libbers. Okay. You know, that they would have probably been exercising their newfound freedom in Christ to the detriment of, of actually recognizing um, their husband's authority over them. So what we've basically got is this, all right. We've got the Jewish men and women coming along to the gathering in whichever house it was meeting, and both the men and women in their own way are veiled, okay? And the Greek believers, the Corinthians are coming in, and their men and women aren't veiled. Now, we've seen before that Paul in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, is answering a letter 
that they've written to him. And we can work out the questions that they've raised by the answers that he gives. And so clearly, what they've done is the church has written and say, look, this veiling, you know, who's right, who's wrong? The Jewish men don't veil, the Greek, uh, the, the, sorry, the Jewish men do veil, the Jewish women do, the Greek men don't, the Greek women don't. Who's right? Who's wrong? And this is what Paul is writing to deal with. And what he's basically going to, as he sorts this out, what he's basically going to be showing them is this, that the Jewish women are right about order and authority, but they are wrong about status and freedom. And he's then going to show them that the Greek women are right about status and freedom, but they're wrong about order and authority. So what we're going to see is this, that what it's going to boil down to, the Jewish women are right to understand that they're in submission to their husbands. But they are wrong to veil themselves because the veil was forever a sign of being separated from God. I'll be back to that in a minute. And we're going to see that he's therefore going to say to the Greek women that they are right about status and freedom because they're not wearing veils, but they're wrong about order and authority because they're taking their freedom too far. And we're going to see also what he says to the menfolk as well. So basically, what we're going to do is to just see how Paul kind of works his way, unpicks this knot and, and takes each person, you know, and says, they're right about this, they're wrong about that. You're right about this, you're wrong about that. Okay, so let's, let's actually move, move through this. Right, well, let's actually, although the push behind this is uh, what women ought to have on their heads, what this sign of authority actually is, but we're going to actually start with the menfolk. Now, let's actually have a look at verse 4. Now, look what Paul says. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered, dishonours his head. Now, we've got to understand the Greek here. When it's talking about covering, the word veil is not actually used here at all. Okay, uh, The Greek men and women were veiled, the women in particular, the men had their talis, but the actual Greek word for veil isn't used here. But, 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 but words for covering are, and the idea is something coming around the side of your face and covering the side of your face and, and partially covering the front of your face as well. That's, that, that's the push. And so what Paul says, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. Right, so immediately we ask the question, which of the menfolk are right, the Greeks or the Jews? The answer is the Greek men are right because they're not wearing talis, they're not veiling themselves in any way at all. And of course, the point is the Jewish men are wrong because they are not living up to their position in Christ. What do I mean by that? Just go to verse 7. Uh, well, we've, we've already... Uh, Sorry, we've read verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. Then, now we need verse 7 for the reason, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. Now again, what we've got to go back to here is understanding what a veil's all about. Veils are all about being separated from God or being separated from other people, alright? Now then, so therefore... If you have a covering, if a man is having a covering, um, if this hides his face, he cannot see God face to face anymore. That's the push behind it. But that is what man is created for, the image and glory of God. 
Now, sin separated, as it were, but nevertheless, because of what Jesus has done, we have been brought back into fellowship and we have the Lord face to face. Just go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and I hope this will start to become a little bit clearer. 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and uh, find verse 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 12. And he says this, therefore, since we have such a hope, and he's been talking about what Jesus has done. He says, we are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading. Um, but their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so therefore, what Paul is saying there, is he's saying, look, the veil is over the unconverted Jews, because they're still under the Old Testament, they're still under the Old Covenant, they still think that you can get saved by obeying the Old Covenant. You, you, you can't obey the Old Covenant. We're saved by the new covenant, purely by grace, a free gift from the Lord through faith in Jesus. So therefore the veil is a picture of still being separated from God. Now therefore, because we're one with him, because of Jesus, he says we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. Now therefore, for Christian men to be coming together and gathering as a church with their faces veiled is to deny that. And so therefore what Paul is saying there is, hey, you Jewish guys, sorry, no veils, my goodness, that is a symbol of the very thing you've been set free from. The veil is a symbol of not having the law face to face. And he's saying in Jesus, that's exactly what you do have. Now, and if you go to uh, Matthew 27, let's, let's see something else that happened that, that incredibly symbolic of this. Matthew chapter 27, and um, uh, find verse 51. Matthew 27, and verse 51. Now then, this is the moment, the very moment that Jesus died on the cross. At that moment, the curtain or veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. Now, in the temple, this curtain was a veil and only one person could go behind it once a year and that was the high priest once a year to make atonement for the people's sins, all right? So there was a veil. It's, God was inside in the Holy of Holies. You could not have God face to face because that veil, that curtain separated you. When Jesus died on the cross, that veil was ripped. And notice it's from top to bottom. Almost as if, as the very moment that Jesus died, and it was at that microsecond that the new covenant was put into effect. It was at that microsecond that our full salvation in Jesus was, was made totally available. Jesus said, it is finished. And it was absolutely, completely finished. And it's as if Father leant down from heaven and in absolute celebration ripped the veil of the temple and from top to bottom it was torn right to the ground. Because for those in Jesus, there is nothing that separates us from him. Well, our sin does, but assuming that we're in ongoing fellowship with God, then we do have him face to face in the very, the very face of Jesus himself. Go, go to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, and we're going to read verse 19. 
And he says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, behind the veil. You see, he's taking the symbolism of the temple and saying, now we've gone behind it. Now once only the high priest was able to go in there. And look, it says in verse 20, where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf, he has become a high priest forever. Jesus went behind that curtain into the Holy of Holies. Goodness, he is the Holy of Holies. He's God himself. But because he's gone in, then we can all go in. Again, the veil is just completely gone. Then if you just go over still in Hebrews to chapter 10, and if you uh, find verse 19, and he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. So there's again, we've gone through that veil. So therefore, as far as we are concerned, the veil is absolutely gone. And therefore, the idea of men coming and gathering as, as the church and praying and sharing and teaching and prophesying with, with a veil over them is, is symbolically denying the very salvation that they are coming together in order to actually celebrate. So therefore, we see quite clearly that Paul there, when he's addressing the menfolk, he makes it very, very clear that the, the Jews are wrong and the Greeks are, are right, okay? The, the, the Christian men in the Corinthian church should not be coming, covering their face with veil or talus or anything like that at all. Now, if we just go down to verse 14, um, because, okay, thus far, it's kind, of, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of 15 love to the Greeks. All right, the Greek men are right, all right? They weren't veiling themselves, and they were right, okay? But look in verse 14. He says, Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? Now, there's a key here, little clue talking about the length of hair. But why would Paul suddenly here start saying that it's a disgraceful thing for a man to have long hair. Uh, we've seen, uh, we've already read that, that, that for a woman to have long hair is her glory. But for a man to have long hair, oh, that's, that's a disgrace. He should have short hair. Now, why does Paul do that? Well, I'll tell you. At the time that this letter was written in the ancient world, in the Greek culture, the men had long hair. The Jewish men didn't. So these pictures you get of Jesus looking like a Hollywood star with long hair, I mean, absolutely not. No, I mean, the, the Jewish men knew that it was wrong to have long hair. The Romans had short hair. When you look at the busts of the Caesars, I mean, they're all kind of like short back and size. But the Greeks, their culture was that the men had long hair. And so what Paul is saying now then, you Jewish men with your head, you know, covering your face and everything like that with your talis, he said, no, no, you're wrong, you're wrong. Uncover yourself. And he says, but hang on, you Greek men, before you start looking too happy with yourself, I want you to realise you've got long hair. You might not be wearing a talis like the Jewish man, but your long hair flapping all over your face is doing the same thing. So what he's saying is, look, you Jewish men, take your talis off. And to the Greek men, he says, right, okay, uh, that's good. You haven't got talis, you're not veiled, but now you've got to get your hair cut because your long hair is acting in the same way as those Jewish men with their talis, okay? So that sorts out the thing with the menfolk. What's the key? Oh, it's length of hair. Goodness, it's length of hair. So... A man shouldn't have a, 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 a covering on his head that is separate from part of his own body, all right? But that's not enough. Because the Greek men didn't have that, but 
their own hair was acting as a covering. And Paul said, oh, oh, no, 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 you've got to get your hair cut. Now, we're not saying it's got to be kind of traditional short back and sides or crew cut, but the point is that a man must have demonstrably shorter hair than women do, and also it mustn't, taking the Greek into account, it mustn't be long enough to flap down over his ears so you can't see his ears and hanging all over his face. You know, and from the back, it can't be so long that he could be mistaken for a woman from behind, all right? So, so that's what we're seeing. doesn't mean short back and size. Can you imagine me with short back and size? But what it does mean is that men ought not to have long hair in the accepted uh, term or the accepted way that we use that. And uh, <laughs> as, as you know, actually, this is probably due to my background, you know, I mean, when I, you know, when I came to know the Lord, I, I had long hair, uh, you know, I was the, the newly converted hippie. And I must admit, purely visually, purely for myself, I do like long hair on men. It is something that I think looks pleasing. But here's the point. Why don't I have long hair anymore? Uh, well, no, I think uh, meeting Belinda would have put pay to that because Belinda doesn't like me with long hair anyway. But the point is, even before I knew her, why, why, why was I not wearing my hair long anymore? Because I realised that this is what the scripture taught. Okay, so that God doesn't like long hair. Whether we do, whether we like long hair on men, whether we think it looks cool or whatever, and there are different opinions about that. A lot of people think that long hair on bloke looks absolutely awful and horrible and ghastly and disgusting. However, other people think it looks good. I'm one of them, but it doesn't matter what we think. The Lord doesn't like it, and therefore we should make sure that as men folk, our hair is short as opposed to long. Right, okay, so let, let's now have a look at the women. Let's see what Paul writes to the women folk here. Now let's read from verses 8 to 10. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So there we see the pattern, the hierarchy. Adam was created first, so he was the authority. He was in headship, all right? And uh, so, so he, he, he was at the top of that hierarchy. And the woman was created to be his helper. It wasn't the other way around. She was there to help him, not the other way around. And he says, for this reason, you see, that's why. That's why, because a woman is under her hus husband's authority, for this reason, and because of the angels, don't ask me why, but this is for the benefit of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. Okay. So, so what we're seeing is that women ought to be covered as a sign, and this covering is on, on the head, as a sign to the angels that they are under the authority of their um, um, of their their husbands. All right, and in verse three, we've seen that this principle was established. Remember, this is functionality; it's not equality. I mean, we're absolute men and women are equal before God. But in verse three, when Paul has set the scene by saying that the the God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of the woman. Okay, now let's, let's carry on, read verse 5. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. Hmm. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. Now, what's, what's interesting is that here, Paul is making it absolutely clear that it is dishonouring for a woman to be praying or prophesying or taking part when the church comes together um, without this, um, her head being covered. And what he does is he equates no covering with baldness. So, so he says, well, look, if you're not going to have a covering, you might as well shave your head off. Now, can you see he begins there to equate this covering with length of hair, all right? And so what he's saying is that uh, if you're not going to have long hair, if you're going to have short hair, well, that is, that is a disgrace. You might as well just go and, you know, shave all your head off, um, you know, all your hair off 
completely. So it, it seems to me that there Paul is is talking about the fact that this this covering is is hair and it's to do with length of, of hair. Go down to verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? And, and then he goes on, nature teaches you that men shouldn't have long hair, you see. And so the point is that, that, that he's saying that judge for yourselves, that inner, inner consciousness tells us that a woman ought to have long hair. And just if you look throughout history, if you just look at, at, at this, you know, sort of like the understanding of this that the human race has had, you will find that by far, when you look at cultures throughout history, by far the vast majority of human beings throughout history have instinctively followed a pattern of women having long hair and men having short hair. Now that's just a fact. Now it doesn't mean that there aren't aberrations here and there. You've only got to look at um, you know, a painting of uh, John Wesley. <laughs> look at the length of his hair. Yeah, there have been times, especially in England, when we've had you know, men having long hair, culturally. But when you look back over world history and the varying cultures of the world, it's been the other way round. And, uh, you know, and Paul says, look, you know, this, this is the very nature of things. And isn't it true as well that when he talks about um, you know, it being you know, disgraceful or, or not proper you know, for a, a woman to, to have short hair, isn't it interesting that, for instance, when the Nazis got hold of the Jews, one of the ways they would humiliate the women in particular would be to shave their heads. All right, to shave their heads. Now, why is that? Well, let's go down to verse 15. But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. So in the prior verse, he says, does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? So it's disgraceful for a man to have long hair. Why? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. Okay. So what is the, argue, the argument thus, thus far? Women need to have a covering on their heads to show the angels, be they the goodies or the demons or all of them, to show the angels that they are under the authority of their husbands. If not, they might as well shave their heads. If they're not going to have this long covering, they might as well shave their heads, which would be a disgrace to their womanhood. So, for a woman, a shaved head means shame. The opposite of shame is pride or glory. So, what is the glory? Long hair. What is the shame? Shaved. So, what's the head covering? It's hair. And in the second half of verse 15, for long hair is given to her as a covering. Now that Greek word there for as, anti in the Greek, means in place of or instead of. For instance, in Matthew 22, all right, just, 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 just go to Matthew. Let me show you this, 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 this little word used in other places. This is, this is important. Uh, Matthew chapter 2 and uh, Matthew chapter 2 and verse 22. Now this was, this was after Joseph had taken baby Jesus and Mary down to Egypt to be safe. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. In place of. That's this little word. It shouldn't be uh, translated as a covering. It should be instead of, in place of. Um, go, go to James chapter 4. Let me show you this same little word, anti. A-N-T-I, translated a different way. And in the letter of James, if you say uh, the letter of James, and if you find chapter 4 and verse 15, we'll, we'll start reading from, um, from verse 13. He said, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow will go into this 
or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, and that's anti, A-N-T-I, instead. Rather than this, you ought to say this. And so therefore, you have a king reigning in the place of another, and here James says, instead you ought to. And so that is how that Greek word is translated elsewhere in the Bible. So if we use that translation here, we get this. For long hair is given to her instead of a covering, or in place of a covering, or rather than a covering. So can you see? He's combating, all right, the fact that the women were, were or, or the Jewish women were actually wearing material veils, and that was their covering, and he's saying, no, my goodness gracious me, get that covering off, can't you see your long hair is your covering, okay? So then, the point is that what we've got is this. The Jewish women were right in the sense that they understood that they were under their husband's authority. But they, they were, it's not that they were taking that too far, but they weren't feeling free enough towards the Lord because their veil was almost saying, well, God's business is, that's just almost down to my husband and that. It says, no, you have Jesus face to face as well. So get the veil off. Your long hair is that sign of authority, not a veil. Not a veil, it's your long hair. So the point is, a woman's long hair, it's a sign that she's under her husband's authority, but it is not a covering such as represents that she doesn't have the law face to face, because she does have the law face to face. However, the Greek women were right in the sense that they had their long hair, so they didn't have any veils or anything. And Paul says, yes, you're, that's absolutely right and marvellous. You're correct. You understand how free you are towards the Lord. But you Greek ladies, what you've got to realise is your very long hair is a sign that you ought to be under your husband's authority. So can you see what I mean when earlier I was saying that the, um, that the, uh, that the Greeks were... I've lost my place now. Um, oh, excuse me, just just for one moment. Um, right, yes, I've got it. I've got it. That can you see what I meant when I said that the the Jewish women were right about order and authority being under their husband's authority, but they were wrong about status and freedom because they were downplaying their relationship with the Lord too much. All right. Now then, the Greek women were right about status and freedom. They understood their relationship with the Lord and that they didn't need to wear vows or anything about that. But they were wrong about order and authority because they needed to realise that nevertheless they were under their authority. So the point is, both the husband and wife revolve around the Lord. He's the centre of their universe. But, unlike the husband, who is like the earth revolving around the sun, the woman is like the moon. She revolves around the sun, but by revolving around the earth as it revolves around the sun. Can you get that actual picture there? Okay. So, so basically, um, you know, sort of, uh, that is, is, is my understanding um, of, of this rather difficult passage. So it seems to me, I mean, remember we've seen that for me this is the passage that establishes that it is okay for the women to take verbal part um, in that open participatory sharing time when the church comes together. And uh, But what we're seeing now is that, that it's important that the women folk do have long hair and that that hair is a sign of of kind of being under the authority of their husband, or if they're single women, if they're not married, then would be as a sign of being under the leadership of the menfolk in the church. So the married woman obviously would, would respond pu purely and exclusively to her husband's leadership, okay. But if you have unmarried women, then it would still be right for them to respond to what I would call the 
the general consensus, the leadership consensus in the church of the menfolk. So, therefore, long hair is the order of the day for women in the church in precisely the same way that short hair is the order of the day for the menfolk. Right, okay, well, let's, let's move on and... Goodness, I can I, I can see this is going to be a bit of a a, a longer talk than usual. But um, nevertheless, let's let's peg on, because remember we're 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 concentrating on on this talk, not in what the women can't do. We've seen that last time. Women cannot be eldership uh, elders. Um, women cannot teach the church, and what it boils down to is because leadership is male. It's what we're seeing. In the family, the man is the leader of the family. The man is the head of the woman, and the man and wife together are over the children in authority. So the man is the head of the family. He is the leader of the family. Now, the church is an extended family, therefore we would expect to see exactly the same thing carried over into the church, that leadership, the lead, is there for the men folk and not the women folk. So obviously we're seeing the women can't teach. Um, you know, the women aren't going to be elders. We've seen as well that they're not going to be deacons anyway. But I mean, to some extent, I mean, just 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 put deacons deacons on the shelf anyway, because unlike eldership, it doesn't involve leadership. It's purely practical. But nevertheless, I would still maintain that deacon, uh, you know, that deacons should be. Um, men folk as well okay so what we're going to move on now is we've seen what the women can't do but now that we've sorted out this fact that ladies you should have long hair to show that you're under the authority of your husband or if you're not married under the men folk in general and um and and so having seen that and that you're free at least to pray and prophesy what we want to move on today is to see what okay we've seen what you can't do but what can you do 